Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. In Colorado's San Luis Valley, five-acre lots of land go for less than $5,000. But protection against marauding cattle, blistering winds, and distrustful neighbors isn't included. In 2017, Ted Conover began spending part of the year on the high prairie, volunteering with a local organization called La Puente, which tries to keep valley residents from falling into homelessness during the cold Colorado winters. Soon enough, Conover, who has previously explored the lives of prison guards, railroad tramps, and Mexican coyotes, bought a parcel of land and immersed himself in life on this margin of society, where contradiction and conspiracy theories thrive. His new book, Cheap Land, Colorado, is a window into a world that is too often overlooked, and he joins us from his other home in New York to talk about it. Thanks for chatting with me, Ted. Delighted to be here. So what made you want to move all the way out to the San Luis Valley in Colorado? Like, how do you decide where to immerse yourself next? Hmm. I'm from Colorado originally and uh, have lived in New York City for 25 years or so, but I miss Colorado. And when uh, my sister, who lives in Denver, told me about people living off grid in this valley in the most bare bones way possible, you know, in broken down RVs or tough sheds or even lean tos. But in the middle of this gorgeous space, I thought that sounds so interesting. I'd like to see it. And then when I learned there was an organization doing outreach to these folks, because around this time of year, it gets super cold at night. And a lot of them would end up in the shelter in the main town in that valley in Alamosa that this group runs. So they thought, let's try and help people stay where they are. And once I realized they had that going, I thought maybe that's a way for me to meet people and do some good while I'm at it. So the pieces just sort of came together. And um, as much as I love New York, I love getting away from New York. And that's pretty far away. It is. Uh, was it recognizable from the Colorado of your youth at all? Or was it just a, might as well be a different state? Almost a different state. You know, I, I wrote a book about life in Aspen in the 80s when Hollywood people were flooding in and the prices were shooting up and locals couldn't afford to live there. Does that sound familiar? Um, (laughs) And I was well familiar with the mountainous Colorado, but this forgotten Colorado out on the plains was not a world I knew. I knew a little about ranching, but the way folks live out on the prairie off grid is not, it's not really ranching. It's like the cheapest possible way to own your own land and not pay a utility for power and escape society and maybe escape law enforcement people if you have a warrant out or maybe you just, yeah, you like being alone. So uh, it's a really different from New York. <laughs> I mean, how spread out are we talking here? I mean, I have the benefit of the book cover, which is beautiful and sparse to look at, but we're hobbled by podcasting as an audio medium. So <laughs> what is it like to drive out there on a typical day if you're doing your volunteer work with La Puente? 
Yeah. So if you're heading east from a little town called Antonito, you go over land belonging to the BLM for about 20 minutes, and then you cross a one-lane wrought iron bridge with a wooden deck, and you're over the Rio Grande River right before it heads into a deep canyon down to Taos, New Mexico. And then on the east side of that bridge, it's private property. Even though in other parts of Colorado, this would all be public land, um, this particular county had giant ranches and sold, and they were sold to subdividers in the 70s. And so there's a grid of five-acre lots laid over this beautiful prairie and there's no trees out there so i could probably see five dwellings when i cross the bridge and they're maybe from a half mile to a mile apart yeah my nearest neighbor's probably just 200 yards from me but the next one is probably a quarter mile from that and it's it's pretty spread out mm. So who's living in these kinds of trailers? You talked about people who are, you know, maybe just trying to escape society or escape law enforcement. Did you have expectations for the kind of people that you were going to run into? And how did they thwart or meet those? Yeah. So I had, I guess, I hope I can be forgiven for having had this stereotype idea of I don't know, little hillbilly, a little redneck, a little, you know, I, I knew there's a lot of uh, Trump voters out there, but I figured they'd be mostly white men. And that may be true, but it may, it's close. You know, there are a lot of women. There are probably more single men than anything else, but there are families including one with five girls being homeschooled who I rented from for my first two years out there, put a little trailer on their property. The second guy I met said, hi, my name's Paul. And, and yes, I'm gay. And I thought, <laughs> oh, okay, let's get it out there. He was fearless and he didn't seem to be afraid of repression or anything. There was a mother and daughter from Louisiana who identified as Creole American there were a couple of people who call themselves Hispanic, though most of the Hispanics, which is the word used out there, are nearer the mountains where there's nicer land and, you know, streams and trees. So there's some um, far-right people who, when the county started enforcing zoning laws, you know, declared themselves constitutional marshals and said, no law applies to me. And um, there's young, more progressive people who are interested in permaculture or just growing marijuana. I met a huge number of conservative old men who are big potheads, and I never expected that. Yeah. I mean, it's not like reading your book, it seems very difficult to, you know, summarize what any one experience was like out there just because it seems pretty individualized. What are some through lines between everybody's experience? Like, could you really say that there is a sense of community there? Yeah, it's, that's such an interesting question because I, I guess community applies because there are 
you know, people who will have a potluck on Memorial Day weekend or the 4th of July. The neighbors who I get along with often communicate using Facebook Messenger and share news that way. Somebody will see a mountain lion and they'll send around a little notice about that or they'll they'll post on Facebook if it snows or if it's windy for the fifth day in a row and and people share stuff like that but that's not to say they all want to hang out with each other and i think uh people respect each other's desire you know for distance but they also look out for each other one of my neighbors who lives in a tiny old camper trailer with four dogs and he's got about two cubic yards of space for himself had a problem with edema in his legs this summer. And Paul, who I mentioned to you a moment ago, is who he called for a ride to the hospital because if you need an ambulance, it could be a long wait. Mm. And and so for things like that, um, people step up. Paul drove him to the hospital and people look out for each other, but cautiously because there's some paranoia around um, marijuana because a single marijuana plant if it's big, is worth about a thousand dollars, and people growing marijuana tend to have dogs and guns, and you have to be really careful approaching their homesteads if you are volunteering for La Puente like me. Um, if you see an American flag, that's a sign that probably somebody has a gun, and so you learn to toot your horn from out on the road and hope somebody appears. If they put out their head, I would step out of the truck and let them see, you know, who I am. I'm not a very big guy. I uh, I want people to think I'm not there to steal anything. I've got a big La Puente sign on the door of the truck. And, and so it took a long time to get to know people. But um, the more I did, the more intrigued I, I got. After two and a half years, I bought my own five acres, and I've been fixing it up since. And uh, I just, I never thought I would, but I've really um, connected to the place. Why do you think that is? What's the connection? It's so beautiful, for one thing. It's just stunningly beautiful. The sky is gigantic, and the valley holds it between two mountain ranges, the Sangre de Cristos and the San Juans. So it's like you're cradled in this giant space. People say it's almost as big as New Jersey, this space. But you can see from side to side. And then, especially in the summer, the sky is super dramatic. You know, clouds form midday, wind picks up a little, and then there might be rain over on your left, 50 miles out, and you might see sunshine to your right and behind you, a whole different kind of clouds gathering. But what to me makes it real is these sort of Mad Max touches here and there of, you know, a collapsed trailer or something smoking. Maybe it's somebody's burn barrel or maybe, I don't know. The, the day I moved out there, somebody's hash oil operation exploded and burned down their little um fabric greenhouse so you've got this sort of 
dangerous off the wall stuff going on. And then you've got this serene natural beauty and it's all together. I mean, do you feel like you really won people's trust as a volunteer since you are not out there all the time? You know, you do have the option to leave. Oh, yeah. You know, that's always the proviso or the uh, the bottom line is I'll never understand it like they do because I can leave. But by coming back again and again, you know, first time La Puente, second time, hi, I'm Ted, I'm a writer. I live in New York, believe it or not. And boy, some people are so skeptical then. <laughs> but you have to persevere. And I would find that even with, you know, one bar of cell phone signal, they would Google me, learn about me, and I'd be, you know, just very upfront, love to talk to you. I'd like to write about life out here. I think people would be interested. Nobody seems to know you're even here. Could I talk to you? And most people say, yeah, and um, some say no, and that's just fine. I would take pictures later. Halfway through, I wrote an article for Harper's Magazine about the people I'd met so far. And then I, you know, I took a box of 20 copies out there with me and gave them to everybody so they could, you know, see what I'm up to. And um, most people liked it. Uh, The neighbor who complained first complained because I hadn't put him in. Uh, He's a guy who goes by the nickname Camaro Jim because he has a an old red Camaro and his life had just fallen apart in Aurora, Colorado. He'd lost his union job with a telecommunications company. His son had overdosed. His wife left him. He said, I had nothing left. I Googled cheap land and I found Tennessee and I found Southern Colorado. And I thought, oh, I like Colorado. And But he kind of feels his life is over or the best part of it is. And and so he's just sort of laying low down there. And you meet people with a lot of loss, people who haven't been able to meet, live up to expectations, right? They've lost jobs or been laid off, people in poor health, veterans with PTSD. You know, it's a sort of marginal... It's, a, it's like the edge of society. It's people who don't fit in. Like a lot of people don't have all their teeth and feel this stigma when they go into town and everybody knows, oh, you're from out on the prairie. But they're more comfortable on the prairie, right? It's a, it's a place where people don't judge you for that. There's a lot of suffering, but it's the best life, I think, for a lot of these folks. They feel most free out there. Even though sometimes it looks like a, you know, a ghetto in paradise. You open the epilogue with an epigraph from Jelani Cobb, writing in The New Yorker. America's margins have often been the best vantage point from which to survey the weaknesses. I mean, what do you, what has your time in Colorado shown you about our weaknesses? One of our weaknesses is the huge political chasm we have right now. And you and I are talking just after the midterm elections, and there's some signs of moderation, right, on the political landscape. But, you know, there are so many fans of former President Trump out there, and there's just a lot 
of, I say, anger and disillusionment over not really being able to live in the America you thought you could. And some of them blame Democrats, some of them blame people in cities. But I think it's common out there to have a feeling of exile, of being, you know, unable to afford life where most people go, unable to afford gasoline so you can get your insulin in town. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, deprivation and and unhappiness about that. And it makes you think, well, maybe if as a society we could take better care of some of these people, some of the extremeness would go away. But that's only a theory. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a big, there's like so many different problems, but like the big problem that undergirds a lot of experience out there is poverty. You know, <laughs> the land is cheap, but you can't afford a septic system. And because you can't afford a septic system, the government's going to penalize you for it. Exactly. And then you're, you don't have the land anymore. I mean, how do you address something like this systemic poverty when people's only interaction with the government is not a positive one, to put it lightly? Yeah. Well, th what's interesting out there is the government most of the time feels far away. And I think that appeals to people's libertarian impulses, right? The, like if you, if you called the sheriff's office, they could easily take an hour to get there. And the school buses that they send for these far-flung prairie kids, it seems much of the time they don't arrive. Um, ambulances, like I mentioned, take forever it's really easy not to think about government out there, though an interesting exception was when stimulus payments came in and you'd find, you know, people just living on a shoestring suddenly with um, $1,200, you know, free money. And, and at that moment, they liked the government. And I, you know, I kind of gave voice to, I think, the dismay of, my city dwelling friends who say, well, wait, if they're against government, shouldn't they refuse that money? And I would tell my neighbors, you know, are, is this really consistent that you say you don't agree taxes should be high? You don't agree in these payments, but here you are taking them and they all say, hey, you know, I'd be a fool not to take it. Hmm. But there's real ambivalence. I think people are not proud taking money like that or, you know, getting food stamps or the annual tax refund. If you're a real poor person, you, you know, it's not actually a refund. It's a big payment that you get. And, um, people feel guilty about that even while they hold conservative values. I'm curious about something you said earlier about wanting to go out and understand maybe extreme points of view. And since 2016, that's not an uncommon refrain. We heard it a lot in the aftermath of the election, but it can be kind of one-sided. So I'm curious if your mind was changed by the people you encountered and on the flip side, if anyone out there that you were talking to sort of had maybe some of their expectations of the coastal elite change. So. <laughs> you know, 
one of the hardest parts of the time I've spent out there is listening to people who seem to have just turned off the TV or they've just gotten off the internet and they've heard some new crazy theory or outrageous falsehood, right? A QAnon and there's just, that stuff gets a lot of traction out there. You know, it's really hard to be spoken to by somebody who believes these things when you don't believe these things. And I remember asking a couple, they were immigrants from Poland. They just had this whole raft of, you know, extreme ideas that every government entity is in fact a corporation. And the number on your birth certificate is the number the corporation gave you when you were born. Another couple came over who don't have driver's licenses because they think those numbers are a mark of the devil. And once you submit to the devil, you're lost. So they would like drive their truck to the edge of the prairie and then hitchhike into town to get groceries or do day labor. But they wouldn't drive where they might get pulled over because they don't have driver's licenses. And I would just say, where did you hear these things? And why do you believe them? And they said, oh, it's all over the internet. And they'd play me some YouTube wackadoodle guy, you know, explaining the, the world to them. And they'd say, so how about you? Where do you get your information? And I said, wow, you know, like the New York Times. And they'd look at me like, oh, we've heard about people like you. Like, um, like I was this alien they'd only seen on Fox News, right? Some, some person who actually believes what he reads in the New York Times. And, you know, when you're at that point, you just think it's hopeless. But then if you stay another hour, that stuff kind of goes away. And you get down to talking about the things any neighbors might talk about from the weather and the wind to the work going on down the road to those neighbors who suddenly disappeared and what the police have been doing lately. And so it's like this overlay and I'm not sure how deep it goes, really. The longer I was out there, the more comfortable I felt just and the less threatened by this, the, the extremity. So I, I like to think a lot of it's on the surface. And if we can just keep the conversation going beyond sound bites, maybe we can move ahead. I think it's hard, right? Because that can be a big problem in, you know, just within families too, where divisions have arisen for various political beliefs. Like you can all sit around the table and, you know, talk about not politics for Thanksgiving, but ultimately, are you really bridging political divides if you're just like not talking about it? I don't know. I it did not seem to help me to you know question their beliefs or ask for the sources. That like that usually would not lead anywhere. But when COVID hit, you know, I was in New York City early on and and just saw how awful it was and I'd go back to the valley and people would say, "So is it do you think it's a hoax?" And I'd say, it's definitely not a hoax. This is real. You know, my neighbor works at a hospital. He says there's extra like refrigerated 
trailers outside because they ran out of morgue space. And I said, you've got to think about this if you're not in good health. And um, it wasn't until just the last year that several people who live near me out there died of COVID that I think people started believing in it finally. But I would show them the daily mortality email from the you know, the county health department. And I think I convinced a couple of people it was real. But yeah, you're kind of uh, blowing against the wind sometimes. Mm. Yeah, COVID is such an interesting punctuation mark mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in your book, I guess, because by the time COVID hits in 2020, you've already established relationships with a lot of people. You know, you had been at work on this book, you had been living there for years at that point and had one trust. And, you know, a lot of times I feel like hard information or hard truths or, you know, like we're persuaded by the people we know, you know, you're more likely to believe people whom you trust. Yeah, it's true. Do you feel like COVID or the experience of talking to people about COVID, about this thing that they believed was a hoax? that you had seen firsthand coming from a big city that, you know, might not have reached them on the prairie. Do you feel like that tested any of your beliefs about how we form relationships or uh, opinions or how we understand each other? Everything I experienced out there influenced my thinking about that. You know, the whole skepticism around public health and what the CDC would say. I just kept thinking, well, if this disease is as virulent as the experts say, um, people will come around eventually because it's going to start affecting them. And that happened, but it took more than a year, right? Like, I remember this rancher who I greeted by extending my forearm, you know, to bump forearms instead of shake his hand. He said, oh, Jesus, you're not doing that, are you? And I said... Just playing it safe. And um, turns out last year he was hospitalized. His daughter told me he almost died. And I'm not going to say, ha ha, see who's right now. I'm not going to go there because the guy's suffered. But it takes, apparently it takes the actual suffering of people close to you to convince you of what's real. And there's such a deep skepticism, I think, about the media, of which I'm a part, um, mm -hmm. that, I don't know, it, it seems dangerous how much skepticism there is, right? Like, vulnerable people will die because you're too skeptical. But it was the existence of silos, like the one I think I live in in New York, where I was surprised that Donald Trump could win the election, uh, that made me think I have to get out there and meet people who voted for him. And I can't say I've arrived at, you know, concrete solutions for what made them do that. But I just, I feel in a small way, you know, I've had a whole bunch of dialogues and people out there now know my book, they'll read my book, a bunch of prairie people came to a presentations I gave there last week. And um, I don't know, I just think connection is good. And uh, me being connected to them and them being connected to me, I hope 
is a positive thing. Fingers crossed. Well, it seems like your entire career has been engaged with the margins of society, with people who are forgotten. I'm curious if you've seen a change since the 1980s in your first book about railroad tramps in the American West. Right. If you've seen a change both in the way that people on the margins conceptualize themselves, if we can even generalize about people in the margins, but a change in that, mm. or a change in the way that society at large relates to those folks? I think it's a, a very hard thing to generalize about. But one difference between the people I met riding freight trains 40 years ago and the people I meet out on the prairie now who are often from the same sort of social class, working class, mostly white, I think due to MAGA and Donald Trump, they are more politicized and more angry than they were. I also think, though, there's a more interesting sense of them. Back then, it was more clearly white people and everybody else. And now, white people are still in the majority on the prairie, but they're married to brown people. They are close friends with black people. And many of those people of color share conservative or libertarian ideas, right? Like, that's that's more complicated and nuanced than than it was years ago, right? I just think it's harder to draw dark lines around ethnicities and ideologies and class. They're, it's like the old conservative guys who are just smoking a lot of marijuana, you know, and read and have a Bible on the table and it's like these things get mixed and the old alignments are not necessarily still there. It's not just hippies smoking weed. It's the people who would have belonged to the John Birch Society, but now they're MAGA and they've got pistols on their hips at the 4th of July potluck, which is a common thing, by the way. And um, I think with the rise of MAGA, you could say the margins are a little more organized than they used to be, the, especially the people feeling on the outs who are right of center. But it's so hard to make other generalizations. I mean, another one I could make is there's a huge pessimism out there about the longevity of our civilization. Like, like being a prepper out there is commonplace. And it's it's men and it's women and and they have this idea that people in the cities are gonna find their life unsustainable and the riots that wreck cities will force those people out to the prairie where locals will have to defend themselves, I guess against people like me who are hungry and um and want their pickup trucks. So that's a new development, that whole apocalyptic millennial thing is much bigger than it used to be. Maybe that's why you won their respect because you were coming early. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I'm not going to be one of these last minute preppers. 
We have links in the show notes to Ted Conover's new book, Cheap Land, Colorado, Off-Gridders at America's Edge, as well as the Harper's essay that Ted alluded to in the interview. Our autumn 2022 cover story explored another American margin, the wild ginseng hunters of Appalachia. We've got a link to that as well. We're taking a break next week to savor some turkey, but we'll be back on December 2nd. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Thank you.